This is episode 202 of That Shakespeare Life. Why just learn Shakespeare's history when you can experience it? Go beyond the episode and dive into the 16th century with games, crafts, and recipes you can complete at home straight from the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more at castycash.com slash experience and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. The video version of today's episode, along with Shakespeare history documentaries, virtual tours, and animated plays are streaming right now inside the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. Start streaming today at castycash.com slash app, or join us on Patreon as patrons of our show get the app included for free as part of their support. Hi, I'm Miriam Bibby, equine historian, writer, and editor. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Casty Cash. Elizabeth Russell's response to this was not in my backyard, in effect. And if you think about it from her perspective for a while, you know, all these theatre goers invading her genteel district, those narrow, rickety streets clogged up by carriages... The manure from all those horses alone would be enough to put anyone off. And then there's the genuine terror of the fear of the spread of the plague in the confined space of the indoor playhouse. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Lady Elizabeth Russell is known in Shakespeare history circles as the woman who tried to end the Blackfriars Theatre. A devout Puritan and for a time favorite of Queen Elizabeth I, Lady Elizabeth Russell wrote up a treaty against the opening of Shakespeare's Blackfriars Theatre, gaining the support of some of William Shakespeare's own colleagues in the industry for her opposition. Our guest this week, Chris Lautaris, is the author of Shakespeare and the Countess, the book that tells the remarkable story of how one woman stood up to try and stop one of the greatest theaters in history. Dr. Chris Lautaris is a biographer, historian, Shakespeare scholar, and associate professor at the Shakespeare Institute in Shakespeare's birthplace of Stratford-upon-Avon. His research interests include Shakespeare's theaters, women's history, particularly female political and religious activists, the development of the early sciences, and Renaissance politics and espionage. His most recent book, Shakespeare and the Countess, The Battle That Gave Birth to the Globe, from Penguin UK and Pegasus in the US, was shortlisted for the Tony Lothian Prize for Biography, was Observer by Book of the Year, Telegraph Book of the Year, one of the New York Post's must-read books, one of the Daily Telegraph's top 10 history holiday reads, and made the bookseller's top 10 most-reviewed books for the season of its release. Find out more about Chris and see links to his book and other research publications in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Lady Elizabeth Russell was an ambitious woman, particularly given her circumstances. I mean, when we think about the Elizabethan era, we consider women to be sort of demure and subservient, certainly not people who were becoming the first female owner of their own castle, as we are told about Elizabeth Russell. Is that a true story about her? Was she the first woman to own her own castle? 
Well, yeah, well, Elizabeth Russell was anything but silent and demure, um, that's for sure. And she did, um, in, in terms of ownership, the castle was leased to her, in a sense. So the right to grant the keepership of castles belonged to the Queen, in effect. And Elizabeth Russell petitioned the Queen relentlessly for years <laughs> to get the keepership of her own castle. Now, a keepership is actually a, it's a post with military connotations, which could only be given to men, because at, in times of war, castles and their armaments had to be made available for the defence of queen and country. And it came under an old feudal law known as shield service. And so Elizabeth Russell knew full well that only men could really be granted the keeperships of castles. But she decided she wanted her own castle and her own armaments and her own weapons. And so she petitioned the queen and she did this by offering her bribes. So she gave her elaborate hats, uh, fabulous jewels, purses stuffed full of cash in order to convince her to allow her to have her own castle. And we all know that Queen Elizabeth I is regarded as being a fairly stubborn individual, uh, someone who knows her own mind and knows how to govern a country. But even she could not withstand Elizabeth Russell's kind of relentless pursuit for her own castle. And eventually, after a number of years, she gave in and she granted her the keepership of Donnington Castle near Newbury in Berkshire. And she also granted her the bailiff of the manor of Donnington. So as far as I'm aware, this is the first example of a woman holding these posts. I couldn't find, uh, I, I couldn't trace any other female who had these kind of posts with these military connotations. And so Elizabeth Russell seems to have been breaking with tradition there. And she was immensely proud of her castle and her weapons. She referred to them as mine own weapons. And she even claimed to have the powers of a sheriff in her own dominions. And one thing I love about Elizabeth Russell is she constructed a prison in the grounds of her Berkshire estate. This is Bissam Abbey in Berkshire. She constructed a prison in, in, in her grounds with at least two pairs of stocks in which she would regularly incarcerate her enemies. Now, that's got to be a first, uh, a woman who has her own prison. And one story I love about her is that she, she incarcerated the servant of one of her enemies and demanded a huge ransom for his release. And they need that, that poor individual was kind of languishing in her prison. And they could only get him released with the help of the Queen herself. The Queen had to intervene in order to get him released from Elizabeth Russell's clutches. So um, she was incredibly proud of her castle and her weapons and her prison. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like she worked hard to have them and wasn't going to let them go. Absolutely. Was Lady Elizabeth Russell really a countess, though? That's a very good question. And the answer is quite complicated because formally, she was not entitled to call herself a dowager countess. Now, during this period, a countess could only be given the title of dowager if she was married to somebody who had been an earl. So anybody of below the rank of an earl could not be given the title of dowager countess upon the decease of her husband. Now, unfortunately for Elizabeth Russell, her husband died just before acceding to the glittering earldom of Bedford. And so formally, she was not entitled to call herself a dowager countess, but she did, in fact, have a very strong claim. So 
the claim rested basically on the gender of the claimants. So Elizabeth Russell was arguing that her daughters should be the inheritors of the uh, estates of the Bedford Eldon. There was another claimant to those estates, and that was Edward Russell. That was Elizabeth Russell's nephew. But Elizabeth Russell's eldest daughter came from a more senior branch of the family. So she really, in fact, had a stronger claim in terms of the order of birth of the claimants. Now, unfortunately for her, in this case, the ruling came down in favour of the male heir. And Elizabeth Russell was really upset about this. And she kind of recognised that this was unfair. She did actually say that it wasn't right for people to, in her words, favour the heir's male which was a very kind of modern view in a way. Um, She believed that gender shouldn't really play a part in that decision. But she lost the claim to the dowager title and to the Bedford inheritance. But this does not stop her from claiming that she was a dowager. So she continued to call herself dowager countess. She signed all her letters and uh, and documents uh, with that title. And she even constructed her own funerary monument during her lifetime with a fabulous life-sized effigy of herself wearing a countess's crown. And this was, you know, her mark on posterity. She wanted to ensure that the world knew forevermore that she was a dowager countess. And she was so passionate about this. Uh, One story I love about her was during one of her legal cases, an earl dared to suggest that she was not a dowager countess. And she physically assaulted him before a stunned audience. She grabbed him by the cloak and shook him violently, much to everybody's kind of shock. And there was a, uh, a witness to these events and he recorded them. And he, he wrote down in his notebook um, that she was, quote, more than womanlike with a very great spirit and an undaunted courage. So I think there was even some admiration for her boldness, but everybody recognised just how dangerous it was to suggest she wasn't a real dowager countess, because in her own mind and in her own heart, she was. With all of this, with a record for physical assault, if someone disagreed with her self-styled dowager countess status there, was Lady Elizabeth Russell a favourite of Queen Elizabeth, or did Queen Elizabeth kind of find her annoying for all of her bold demands? I think Queen Elizabeth first sometimes did find her annoying. Um, They had a somewhat tempestuous relationship. So sometimes the Queen showered her with favours. So, you know, she she did grant her the keepership of Donington Castle, which was a very unusual thing to do for a woman. She also gave her Bedford House, which was um, one of the grand estates of the Bedford Eldon. So these were real gestures, I I guess, of um, favour. But at the same time, she could also be less favourable to Elizabeth Russell. Uh, Upon occasion, she would shun her in public and therefore humiliate her. And I think one of the worst things she did was she granted Donington Castle to the Lord Admiral Charles Howard while Elizabeth Russell was still in possession of it. And without specifying whether the Lord Admiral would uh, take possession only after her death, Now, the Lord Admiral saw this as a green light to make a play for her castle. And this led to pitched battles. It led to outright warfare between Elizabeth Russell's men armed with weapons from her castle and the Lord Admiral. And they clashed spectacularly over the right to the castle with the Lord Admiral storming it 
and taking it by force. And Elizabeth Russell galvanised her men into action and tried to get the castle back, in effect, by storming it again. She failed to do that and ended up having um, the Lord Admiral's men put their swords to her throat. So things did get terribly heated. Unfortunately for her, she lost the battle to win the castle. She took the Lord Admiral to court over it and, and failed. And when James I succeeded to the throne, he gave the castle outright to the Lord Admiral. And so I guess you could say Elizabeth Russell fared better under the reign of Queen Elizabeth than she did under James I, who was often less favourable to to his female uh, courtiers. I know that the Globe Theatre was established after Shakespeare and Burbage and compatriots have moved the physical building of the theatre off its leased land to create what we know as the Globe today. However, I had understood that move to be based on a lease disagreement with the man who owned the land, which is why they took the building down and bought new land and then rebuilt it with the timbers because they actually did own the timbers as opposed to the land. But was the drastic move actually in response to a petition by Lady Russell? In a way, yes. So both of those uh, are correct. Both of those standpoints are correct. So the failure to renew the lease on the land on which the theatre in Shoreditch was built was in a way the trigger. So the theatre, capital T, was the home venue of the Chamberlain's Men, the company to which Shakespeare belonged. And when the puritanical landlord, Giles Allen, refused to renew that lease, James Burbage, who had built the theatre, who was the kind of the theatrical impresario, um, who who was the financial backer behind the enterprise, he realised they were in serious trouble with no secure means of income to see them through to the end of the following year after the lease had, had ended. So the lease was due to end around April 1597 and with no secure playing venue for the company. So what did he do about this? Well, he took a huge gamble. He sunk a fortune into the building of a new theatre in the upmarket district of the Blackfriars. It was quite a a well-to-do area. And he paid £600 for the building and then paid a further £400 immediately on renovations. Now, £1,000 was a colossal sum of money during this time. It was a huge risk, but Burbage felt it would be worth it. He would be embarking on a new enterprise, dragging the theatre industry, kicking and screaming into the 17th century with this brand new, modern indoor playhouse and it did have that advantage of being indoors the theatre in Shoreditch was an open-air theatre exposed to the elements so with the Blackfriars theatre they could play all year round it would be much more luxuriously appointed uh, would have the latest in special effects technology you know the very best kind of trapdoors and ceiling winches to create those all-important theatrical spectacles controllable lighting system um, so it would be a much more upmarket space and they could charge more for the privilege of attendance there. So it looked for them as if they were on the brink of more success than they had ever known with this brand new theatre about to open uh, in this very expensive district. Unfortunately for them, however, the theatre was built just paces away from the doorstep of Elizabeth Russell. It was less than 187 feet away. I managed to map the area, and you can see that in the book. And I timed the walking distance between the two sites, and it's about a minute. So it's very close. Elizabeth Russell's response to this was not in my backyard, (laughs) in effect. And if you think about it from her perspective for a while, 
you know, all these theatre goers invading her genteel district, those narrow rickety streets clogged up by carriages. The manure from all those horses alone would be enough to put anyone off. And then there's the genuine terror of the fear of the spread of the plague in the confined space of the indoor playhouse. And, you know, with the devastation that we've had recently with COVID, I think we can we can empathise with this terror of kind of contamination in this small enclosed space. So what did Elizabeth Russell do about this? Well, she did something quite modern. She got up a petition and she got 30 influential members of the district to sign it. And I've discovered a legal case of Elizabeth Russell's, which finished in the same year as the petition, which was 1596. And there's a sentence in that which is identical, apart from one word, to a sentence in the opening address to this petition. And I also found a letter of Elizabeth Russell's in which she tells us about her process for getting up petitions. And it's identical in almost every respect to the Blackfriars petition. So we can be pretty sure that the wording in the petition was hers and that she was kind of prime mover of this petition. You know, possibly in collaboration with other people, but uh, I think she was, you know, the, the mastermind behind that petition and it fits in with everything we know she was doing at the time. And so this petition was successful. It kept the players out of the Blackfriars Theatre. James Burbage died shortly afterwards. And some, there's this legend that it's apocryphal, but, you know, it states that Burbage was so broken hearted at losing his theatre and that's what hastened his death. And finding themselves bankrupt, his sons, Richard and Cuthbert Burbage, created the Globe Theatre. So the Globe may not have come into being had it not been for this petition blocking the players from opening the Blackfriars Theatre. And so maybe the Globe, we can think of it as a kind of plan B. James Burbage was taking the theatre indoors with a new, more modern style of playhouse when he built the Blackfriars. And so dismantling the theatre from Shoreditch and using the beams to build the globe was, I think, a kind of an afterthought almost. It was was a desperate measure to recoup something of what they had lost uh, in the enterprise with Elizabeth Russell's um, petition. But it turned out to be a canny move in the long run because the the globe theatre was very successful. But I do do think that at the time, they thought the way forward was the Blackfriars Theatre. Uh, and it was only when they were thwarted in that endeavor that the, the globe came into being. I know that the Blackfriars was delayed in starting as a theater over opposition to it being located in the Blackfriars district. As you outlined, Lady Elizabeth Russell wasn't the only person who felt like it was disrupting a good thing there and they didn't want the theater to be set up there. But is the petition Lady Russell had signed the reason the delay was successful, causing Shakespeare and Burbage to have to wait years to set up shop in the Blackfriars district. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that petition was successful. And the reason it was successful is it went to the Privy Council. Now, the Privy Council is a a group of advisors who meet most days of the week. Their job is to advise the Queen, to navigate the ship of state, um, to implement policy and law. And this included edicts which affected the fate of the theatres. And so Lady Russell, very interestingly, had relatives on the Privy Council. So her brother-in-law was William Cecil, Lord Burley and the Lord High Treasurer of England. So he was one of the Queen's oldest and longest serving advisors and was very trusted by her. 
His son was Elizabeth Russell's nephew. His name was Robert Cecil. He was the Secretary of State and therefore the most powerful man in England. Yeah, not a but bad they, connection to have at all. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. If you if you want connections, that's a good one, uh, right there. You know that that's the kind of you can kind of see why the petition was successful. And in addition to this, her kinsman uh, William Brooke, the Lord Cobham, was also on the Privy Council. Now, the Lord Cobham was mentioned in the wording of the petition, and so I guess what the, the petition is trying to do is indicate that the Lord uh, Lord Cobham was in support of this anti-theatrical crusade. So he's another very powerful individual who is related to Elizabeth Russell by marriage and who is on the Privy Council. So Elizabeth Russell is a kind of logical link to the Privy Council and just the ideal person to have managing this petition. And now, because of this petition, the players found themselves evicted, in effect, from the Blackfriars Theatre which remained empty for about three or four years. And around the year 1600, they leased it out to a troupe of child players. And these child players became very successful. And in that same year, 1600, Shakespeare writes Hamlet. And in Hamlet, he has, the uh, Hamlet himself, complain about child actors who are, quote, most tyrannically clapped for, and uh, whose success is driving away the business from the adult players. So it's possible that Hamlet gives us a trace of what Shakespeare felt about the events surrounding the petition and their consequences, which is amazing to think that maybe that legacy has left a trace in in one of history's most kind of famous plays. Was Lady Elizabeth Russell someone whose opinion carried great weight in the 16th century, or was it her connections with the Secretary of State that was allowing her presence and involvement with this petition to to carry so much impact? Well, Elizabeth Russell, I guess you could say she was loved and feared in equal measure. So she was very influential. She was highly respected. And she and her sisters were reputed to be among the most educated women in the whole of Europe. Their father, Sir Anthony Cook, gave them an education literally fit for a king. He was the educator of the young King Edward VI. And so they were trained, the Cook sisters, uh, which is their maiden name, in the environment, the very same environment which educated kings and nobility. And their home in Gideon Hall in Essex uh, came to be known as the female university, which I think is incredible. You know, these for the time in which women were not given equal access to education, for Elizabeth Russell and her sisters to gain such notoriety for their learning. And as well as having lots of influential friends and relatives on the Queen's Privy Council, many of those influential people who signed her petition were close friends of Elizabeth Russell's. Some of them were related to her. Uh, And I traced her relationship with a kind of eclectic group of printers, booksellers, physicians, ministers and wealthy business owners who signed this document and who were among her kind of close circle of intimates. So Elizabeth Russell's contacts definitely helped. She had contacts across three churches, which was St Anne's Church in the Blackfriars, which is right next door to the Blackfriars Theatre, as well as the Dutch Church and the French Church of London. And so she had intimates in all these churches And I discovered that the the petition was signed by members of these three churches. So that would have taken quite a bit of orchestration and administration. Uh, And Elizabeth Russell was ideal for this because she had those contacts uh, across those um, three churches. So 
Undoubtedly, her influence was one of the reasons why this petition was successful. Chris writes that several of Shakespeare's own business colleagues were signers of the petition. Chris, who were these colleagues that signed a petition against the theatre? And were they not acting in their own disinterest to support this petition? This was one of the uh, elements I loved researching most about this book, because there's a real mystery at the heart of this. So when you look at this petition, you'll see it has a kind of introductory address to the Queen's Privy Council. That's the section I believe was written by Elizabeth Fussell because I found you know, sentences in other documents that are almost identical. And then underneath that, there are two columns of names. The second name after Elizabeth Russell's is that of the Lord Hunston, and that's George Carey. George Carey happened to be Shakespeare's patron. So he was the patron of the playing company to which Shakespeare belonged. In the second column opposite that, three names down, you come to the name Richard Field, which is equally as perplexing, because Richard Field was Shakespeare's publisher. Now, Richard Field published, he was, the, he was the first kind of publisher to bring Shakespeare to print. So he published a long narrative poem of Shakespeare's called Venus and Adonis in 1593, which is in fact, arguably Shakespeare's most popular work during his lifetime. So his most popular work, in fact, wasn't one of the plays. You know, a close contender is Henry IV, part one, in fact, which had the most reprints during Shakespeare's lifetime. But arguably the most popular work of Shakespeare's was this uh, text, Venus and Adonis, uh, published by uh, Richard Field. Richard Field was a fellow Stratfordian. So he and Shakespeare grew up together in Stratford-upon-Avon. They went to the same school. Their parents knew each other. Uh, so it's a real mystery, you know, what on earth was Richard Field doing? stabbing Shakespeare in the back like that by signing this petition. Similarly, what on earth was the Lord Hunston, the company's patron doing, signing this petition? Surely they were going against their own interests. So this was a real puzzle, an enigma that I had so much fun trying to unravel. And if you're interested, I mean, I can, I can, um, I can reveal a couple of pointers in terms of what I've discovered in relation to that. I found that Richard Field was kind of moonlighting in a double career. As well as being a printer publisher, Richard Field was also the administrator of St. Anne's Church, which was the church right next door to the Blackfriars Theatre and the church in which Elizabeth Russell herself worshipped. It was a Puritan stronghold and Elizabeth Russell was a devout Puritan. And Field was first assistant warden. He obviously did his job very well and then was promoted to warden of St. Anne's Church. I also discovered that Field's printing press was located you'll never guess where, <laughs> only right next door to Elizabeth Russell's house. Now, his printing press had been lost for four centuries. We didn't know exactly where it was. And so by looking at kind of ancient indentures and lease agreements and letters and other documents, I gradually managed to piece together where everything was in, in that district. And Richard Field's printing press is right next door to Elizabeth Russell's house. And finally, with Field, I discovered that just before he signed the petition, he acquired a new landlord. And that landlord's name was William Delorne. William Delorne was the minister of the French church. He was one of Elizabeth Russell's circle of intimates. And he also signed the petition. So clearly, Richard Field's allegiance to his new landlord, to his church, and his proximity to Elizabeth Russell outweighed his allegiance to Shakespeare. So that kind of solves the mystery about Richard Field. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, which is in the book. Uh, but that's a brief summary of some of the pointers I discovered. 
And as for Shakespeare's patron, well, he lived just beneath the Blackfriars Theatre and he was related to Elizabeth Russell by marriage. So I don't think he could have got away from Elizabeth Russell if he tried. And there are also other political reasons why he would have signed that petition and why only Elizabeth Russell could have forced him to do so. But that's a much longer story. So I can refer you to my book for that. (laughs) We will put a link to Chris's book in the show notes for today's episode so that you can read the rest of this fabulous story. But Chris, tell us what ultimately came about after the petition was signed and posted. Shakespeare, we know, went on to set up both the Globe and the Blackfriars. So how was that able to happen if this petition had such an impact? Very good question. So what we know is from a legal case of James Burbage's sons, that the loss of the Blackfriars Theatre really had a devastating impact on the family. His sons complained about you know, how crushing it was to lose the Blackfriars Theatre like that. And so his sons had very little money left for a new theatrical venture. All they had was the timbers of the theatre in Shoreditch, which were in themselves valuable. So you can understand why they wanted to take those timbers and then use those to build the globe. But in order to do that, they needed capital. And because they were so strapped for cash, what they did was uh, create an entirely new business model that had never been attempted before. So they kept half the shares in the globe for themselves. And then they offered the rest in equal shares to five other shareholders. One of those was Shakespeare. In return, he got to reap 10% of the takings of the playhouse because he became what was known as a housekeeper along with these other sharers and a housekeeper became a part owner of the theatre as well as being a sharer and his share increased slightly after another member of the company Will Kemp uh, left the uh, left the, the Chamberlain's men in 1599 so this in a sense was a good deal for Shakespeare it meant he could be a part owner of his own uh, playhouse. He had a real vested interest in the the playhouse for which he was writing theatres. Now, meanwhile, as I mentioned earlier, the Blackfriars Theatre was leased out to child players. And one of the plays in that repertory was called Eastwood Ho, and it offended King James I because he believed it contained anti-Scottish propaganda. And so we believe that might have been one of the reasons why the child players lost their lease on uh, the Blackfriars Theatre. And so by this point, the Chamberlain's men are the king's men. So the king is, in effect, their patron. And he gives them the Blackfriars Theatre back, in effect, reversing the petition. So they reclaim their theatre in 1608, and they start performing there the following year, 1609, which happens to be the year of Elizabeth Russell's death. So make of that what you will. The best place to start when learning about the history of the globe and Blackfriars conflict and Lady Russell herself is with Chris Lautars' new book, Shakespeare and the Countess. You can find this book at all major retailers, including Amazon, and we'll have a link directly to Chris's book in the show notes for today's episode, so you can go there to find that as well. Chris, in addition to your book, what are some reliable books or resources you can recommend we use to explore more about Lady Russell as well as the Blackfriars and the globe? Um. Yes, so Shakespeare and the Countess is the first full biography of Elizabeth Russell. So there isn't another biography where you can get a glance at the whole of Elizabeth Russell's life uh, in that way. But there is an edition of collected works of Elizabeth Russell's by Patricia Philippi. 
It's called The Writings of an English Sappho, Elizabeth Cook, Hobby Russell. And, and it's Elizabeth Russell's collected works edited by Pat uh, Patricia Philippi with translations by Jamie Goodrich. So that's a good resource if you if you want to know more about what Elizabeth Russell was writing. She was quite a prolific writer of letters and poems and, uh, and other, uh, other forms of um, writing. If you're interested in learning more about Elizabeth Russell and her sisters as a group, there's a wonderful book by Gemma Allen called The Cook Sisters, Education, Piety and Politics in Early Modern England. It's published by Manchester University Press. If you're interested in um, Lady Russell as a playwright in, or a writer of entertainments uh, for the Queen, because she did write a play, uh, which was part of, a, of entertainments for the Queen in her home in Bissam Abbey, there's an article by Elizabeth Zeman Kokovich called Lady Russell, Elizabeth I and Female Political Alliances through Performance. And you can access that through English Literary Renaissance Journal. It's published um, in 2009 and it's volume 39. And lastly, just as if, you're in, if you want a book about Shakespeare, I've got a great recommendation for you. This is a very recent book, uh, fabulously well-researched. It's by Lena Cohen Orlin, and it's called The Private Life of William Shakespeare. And it was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press, and it's packed full of uh, kind of wonderful new insights into Shakespeare's life. Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. We will put links to these books in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stop by there to find all of these resources. Now, Chris, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Okay, so um, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I think I would have to take with me a work that was difficult to exhaust, a work that needed reading and rereading over and over again. And that was uh, as rich as Shakespeare's work is and as giving, as continually giving. The work I've chosen is Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen. So Spencer's a contemporary of Shakespeare's. And the Fairy Queen is this huge, sprawling, encyclopedic, Arthurian-style adventure. It's one of the most extraordinary texts I've ever read. It's kind of ahead of its time. It contains a robot, an iron man, even an alien of sorts. It has a man from the moon and a witch and lots of mythical monsters. I think fans of Tolkien and Game of Thrones would love it. It takes a bit of getting used to Spencer's style. You know, this is all written in verse and it's written in a very almost archaic idiom uh, occasionally. But there are some good editions out there with modern spelling. And I found it a truly mind-blowing and psychedelic piece of writing and I never tire of it it's just so odd it captures the strangeness the beauty and the wonder of the renaissance I think I think that's an excellent choice for sure so what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about okay so I'm, I'm currently working on because I don't like to make things easy for myself I'm working on three book projects simultaneously oh. <laughs> um, the first book is about the making of uh, the 1623 first folio of Shakespeare's plays telling the story of the intertwined lives behind the folio project and how it came into being. The second book is a biography of Elizabeth Russell's nephew, who I mentioned earlier, Sir Robert Cecil, the most powerful man in England, and uh, the only man, in fact, to hold concurrently the posts of Secretary of State and Lord High Treasurer. So he held these at the same time. I think he's the only person in history to do that. And I'm also co-editing a book um, with Dr. Yasmin Arshad, and this is an interdisciplinary book of collected essays about women 
portraiture and literature in the Renaissance, and it's called Cultures of Portraiture in British in the British Literary Renaissance. And it's exciting because it brings together historians, curators, specialists in Renaissance literature and drama, uh, Shakespeare and experts in women's history. So all these projects are keeping me very busy indeed. <laughs> I can imagine they all sound fascinating. We'll look forward to seeing these come to life. And thank you so much, Chris Lautars, for being here and walking us through the history of Lady Elizabeth Russell. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it myself. I'm, I'm really grateful to have a chance to talk to you about Elizabeth Russell. Our show notes this week include links to Chris's wonderful book, Shakespeare and the Countess, along with all of the resources he recommended you check out to learn more about the plight of Lady Elizabeth Russell and the Blackfriars Theatre, as well as the Globe and the Lord Chamberlain's Men. You can also find a portrait of Lady Elizabeth Russell packed into the show notes for this week. Find all of these things at castycash.com slash episode 202. While you're there, be sure to leave us a comment and let us know what you thought about today's episode. If you're an educator in Shakespeare history, then you will love Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is our exclusive line of history activity kits that take pieces of the 16th century and let you try it out for yourself at home or in your classroom. You can learn card games like Naughty that's mentioned in Two Gentlemen of Verona. You can also learn how to make Tudor soap balls and Iron Gall ink. Each activity kit comes with a printable history guide, video tutorial, supply list, and step-by-step instructions so you can try these activities out at home or share them digitally with your classroom. Each kit also contains bonus resources like worksheets, history guides, and more. You can find out more about these kits and sign up for your first one today at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. Don't forget that the video versions of our show, along with animated plays and documentaries all about the life of William Shakespeare, are available inside the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. You can start streaming immediately at castycash.com slash APP. And if you're one of our wonderful patrons who help support the show here on Patreon, you now have access to the entire digital streaming app included in your support. Our patrons get access to exclusive content, live Q&As, behind-the-scenes access to the show, and special monthly events like virtual tours, recipe cook-alongs, and exclusive interviews. If you would like to support the work we do here, then sign up to become a patron. You can see all the patron benefits at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Thank you so much to all of our patrons for helping us continue the legacy of William Shakespeare. We wouldn't have a show without your support. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.